Welcome to Our Weird World. I'm your host, John Henson, and this week, looking at some lesser-known school disasters, and it's going to be a big episode. I got four stories, and so let's just not even waste any time. Let's get into it. things like Columbine and Virginia Tech and Newtown were like, oh man, schools are so unsafe now. Why is this a thing all of a sudden? Well, you know, it turns out like schools have never actually been safe. Um, We're going all the way back to the 1800s. Well, actually early 1900s when Andrew Kehoe, who uh, by the way, would definitely would have been played by Philip Seymour Hoffman in a movie. If Philip Seymour Hoffman were still alive, like dude looks just like him. Um, he was born on February 1st, 1872 in Tecumseh, Michigan. And during his childhood, which is completely unrelated to the rest of this story, but it's pretty interesting regardless. Um, Kehoe accidentally killed his stepmother when he poured a bucket of water on her after their oil stove had exploded and engulfed her in flames. Um, and basically, like if you don't know anything about oil fires, uh, throwing water on them only makes things exponentially worse. So, like basically, his stepmom was playing around with the the oil stove, got a bunch of oil on her, caught fire, and then Kehoe runs and he's like, "Hang on, stepmom, I'm gonna." put you out and then he just grabs his bucket of water throws it on her which then spreads the oil out thus spreading out the fire and just burned her alive and so that was probably um pretty traumatic but despite accidentally murdering his stepmother he went on to have a pretty successful life um he worked as an electrician in st louis for several years before moving back to michigan and buying a farm in 1924, Kehoe was elected as a trustee and later as treasurer, treasurer for the Bath Township School Board. But Kehoe, like, you know, he's kind of successful, but he's also kind of a prick. Um, although he argued for lower taxes, he often just ended up voting against the rest of the board on an issue just out of spite, just because he didn't, you know, get his way or, you know, he didn't like other people on the board. So he would just purposely sabotage votes or just vote, you know, for the opposite way, just because he could. Um, in 1925, he was appointed to temporarily fill the position of town clerk, but then lost the position in the general election a few months later. And he perceived this loss as the general public, at least in Bath Township, as like turning their back on him and just kind of casting him aside, you know, rejecting him. And he just slowly started to lose his mind. Um, he went back to his farm where he cut his wire fences. He killed his trees, uh, cut his grapevines, although he placed them back on their stumps to, you know, like kind of hide the damage. Um, he then began like stockpiling lumber and other building materials in his shed And then in 1926, he bought over a ton of pyrotol, which was an explosive that many farmers used to burn debris at that time, back when you could just buy 
highly volatile explosives just all willy-nilly just because you wanted to, you know, burn some stuff. Um, he also bought two boxes of dynamite from Chapman Sporting Goods in nearby Lansing because you could just very easily be an insane person in the 1920s and just get all kinds of crazy stuff like that. Um, like we've talked before, like in, in like serial killer episodes where these women could just easily get like arsenic and strychnine and, you know, all this kind of stuff, which, I mean, it was like rat poison, but like you can get it in like crazy high doses and then just poison your husband just, and like, there was just no regulation on that kind of stuff whatsoever. Um, On May 16th, 1927, Kehoe's wife, Nellie, was discharged from the St. Lawrence Hospital in Lansing after dealing with tuberculosis. Um, But at some point over the next two days, Kehoe decided that the best treatment for her tuberculosis was just to go ahead and kill her. And which, I mean, like, makes some sense because tuberculosis at that time, before there was like a vaccine for it, uh, killed a lot of people. And he just went ahead and did that to his own wife and then he just kind of plopped her body in a wheelchair and placed it at the back of the chicken coop on his farm. Um, Two days later at 845 in the morning, uh, several fire bombs that Kehoe had planted and rigged inside of his home and other farm buildings exploded. Um, Firefighters saw it. They quickly arrived on the scene and started trying to put the fire out. Um, Boys, you know, he, as the, um, as the fire is burning, Keo walks up to the firefighters and he's like, boys, you're my friends. And, uh, you better get out of here. You better head on down to the school. And the firefighters thought that that was very strange, a very strange thing to say because they're in the middle of putting out a fire at this guy's house. And the homeowner is just like, eh, you can stop that. You should probably go somewhere else. Um, <clears throat> And so why did he say the school? Because at the same time the bombs went off at his house, a huge bomb exploded in the basement of the Bath Consolidated School. Um, the floors on the upper levels of the school immediately like, got lifted several feet into the air. And so like desks, books, and, and just like children were sent flying through the air. And some were even like just blown out of the building. Um, parts of the outer wall and the roof then immediately collapsed and 38 kids died like right then, um, roughly 30 minutes later, Kehoe arrived at the scene at the school in his truck. Um, he motioned for the school superintendent to come over. And shortly after the superintendent arrived at the door, uh, Kehoe flashed a gun. The superintendent tried to wrestle it away from him, but then the truck exploded killing Kehoe, the superintendent, and three other people nearby. And in all, uh, 45 people ended up dying from the explosions, which um, is actually more than the Columbine and the Austin Clock Tower Massacre combined. And we're actually going to talk about the Austin Clock Tower Massacre next week. Um, And at least, I don't know if it's still true, but for a long time, uh, the Bath school disaster was like the deadliest school massacre in history. There's a decent chance it's been, uh, <laughs> it's been, uh, eclipsed at this point, but I don't know. 45 is a lot. So, um, I don't know. Um, our next story here 
is of Walter Seifert, who was born on June 19th, 1921 in Bickendorf, which was uh, a district in the German city of Cologne. Uh, Following World War II, where he spent several months as actually a prisoner of war, Walter then joined the Schutzpolizei, which is German words, man, um, which is part of the German state police, but basically he's, he's like a security guard. Um, he was dismissed less than a year later after being diagnosed with tuberculosis and even worse, the German government denied him any sort of disability, probably because they didn't have the money for it. Um, and so he spent the next several years actually fighting the government for his war pension. Um, when his tuberculosis went into remission in 1953, Walter declared that his earning capacity had been reduced by 30%. And so, you know, he needed like basically needed like government assistance. Um, that claim was also denied by the German government. And as part of his argument, he had accused doctors of falsifying his medical records and conspiring against him to keep him out of work and from receiving his pension. So like he thinks at this point that the government is conspiring against him to just not give him any money. Um, the next year in 1954, Walter met with a public doctor who suggested that he go to a sanatorium for observation. Um, the doctor also noted that Walter was quote mentally devious and had no will to recover. Basically even the doctor is like, yeah, this dude's up to no good. He's totally healthy, but he thinks that the government owes him money. Um, Walter obviously disputed that report and then just added that doctor to the list of people that he believed was conspiring against him. Um, Walter was then examined by another specialist who noted that Walter constantly smiled at like inappropriate times, which like, I get that. Like that can just be a defense mechanism, right? Like anytime, like just a big tragedy happens, like my first, you know, instinct is to make a joke about it and laugh. Like, yes, terrible that a bunch of people have died and been horribly traumatized and all that. But like my defense mechanism is to just like laugh it off or (laughs) whatever. I don't know. Um, This is not Walter, though. Like he legitimately enjoys these sorts of things. Um, The specialist recorded Walter's paranoid thoughts and diagnosed him with schizophrenia. But since Walter wasn't a violent schizophrenic, doctors did not really deem him as a threat to the public, which was kind of a mistake. Um, He actually ended up getting married in 1959, but lost his wife to an embolism when she went into premature labor in 1961. And like, that's tragic in and of itself. But when you're already just kind of walking this fine line, it doesn't help. Right. And so in response, because he thinks immediately that like the government killed his wife. And so he writes this 120 page letter to various agencies, doctors and drug companies blaming the entire medical world for his wife's death death and even went so far as to say that doctors were quote the greatest mass murderers of the poor in the history of humankind and i i mean no i want to like try to give him the benefit of the doubt on that and like say there's like some element of truth to that that's not true that's not true um and, and then obviously like nothing changed because like it's, these are just the ramblings of uh, of an angry crazy person And he decided that, you know, 
strongly worded letters just weren't going to be good enough. So on June 11th, 1964, Walter walked up to a Catholic elementary school with a homemade flamethrower, a spear and mace, um, which is like a very dangerous, albeit highly unconventional, like arsenal, right? Like normally you're just going to have like automatic machine guns and other kinds of, you know, guns, strapped to you this dude was like nah flamethrower spear mace (laughs) just that was just insane to me um three crossing guards actually watched him walk through the gate but i guess they didn't recognize what a flamethrower looked like or a spear because they thought he was just like a mechanic coming to fix uh, a broken gate And maybe, I don't know, I don't know what, like, 1960s Germany looked like. Maybe, maybe guys were just walking around with flamethrowers all the time. I don't know. Um, Walter then walked over to a teacher and a group of students who were holding class outside and just turned on his flamethrower and just started blasting them, which, like, he didn't hit them. He wasn't close enough. They just scattered all throughout the courtyard. Um, So after that attempt to roast those children failed he walked over to one of the school's buildings smashed the windows with his can of mace and began just openly shooting flames into a full classroom um and by now like the rest of the school had figured out what was going on and began trying to get away um walter just he's having a ball all right he is just spraying flames at people running out of doors, jumping out of, you know, windows and and the building, which is now on fire. Um, But eventually the flamethrower ran out of fuel, obviously. Uh, But Walter didn't care. He ran over to Gertrude Ballenrath, who was a 62-year-old teacher, and just, like, impaled her with his spear. Just right, I mean, shish-kebobbed this old lady, this poor old teacher, right through the chest. Um, He then scurried into another building and tried to force his way inside. But Ursula Kerr, another teacher, um, was like kind of on the other side, like trying to keep the doors shut and, and, you know, at least keep the people in that building protected. But Walter ended up pushing his way in, which caused Kerr to lose her balance and fall down a flight of stairs. And uh, Walter then like, goes down the stairs, walks up to her and stabs her with the spear twice in the legs and once in the shoulder. And at that point, Walter kind of felt like he had done enough. And he, you know, he ran off the property, ran off the school grounds, got to kind of a secluded place and drank a poisonous insecticide in hopes that he would just kill himself. However, um, he had ended up watering it down too much. And, (laughs) ended up being chased by as many as 30 people to a nearby railway embankment. But uh, within minutes, he was surrounded by police where, like, he tried to, like, ward him off with a spear. He still got his spear. But then police shot him in the leg and then uh, sent him to a nearby hospital where he ended up dying during questioning. So kind of a frustrating end because, like, I kind of want to know what he thought. I mean, we, we kind of know what he thought before, but like, I really wanted to just like, know what was going through his mind at like, why, why a flamethrower? That's what I want to know. Like what, like 
was post World War II Germany just like they, they just not have guns? Like, did the rest of the world take all of Germany's guns away? And so, like, he's got to improvise and just carry around a flamethrower. I don't know, whatever. Um, our next story here happened in uh, 1979 or started in 1979 when David Young was fired for misconduct from the Cokeville Police Department, um, which is in Wyoming, Cokeville, Wyoming. Um, he had only been there for six months and to make it worse, like he was the only officer on the force. So like, like how bad do you have to be to get fired when you're the only cop on the force? That's crazy. Um, so young then moved to Tucson where he married a, a nice young lady named Doris. And then they joined a, a couple of white supremacist groups as a way to make friends. Which, you know, I don't know about all that, you know, um, <laughs> it's just like it, just the leaps that that made. It's just like this guy's a cop and then he's fired for being a bad cop and then he moves down to Arizona. He gets married and then he's sitting there with Doris and he's Doris. I don't know what accent that is. We're new here in Tucson and I know that everyone in Arizona looks like they are or were a criminal. Everyone in Arizona looks like they're on the run from something. And we need to make some friends. But I want to make sure that our friends are are like-minded. Right? Um, and I mean, I don't know. Maybe I should have asked this before we got married. I mean, Doris, do do you hate Jews and black people? You do. Great, great. That's that's fantastic. God, I knew I married the right woman. Oh. So I think um, you know. I think we should go find where all of the other racist people hang out. It's Arizona. There's probably some somewhere, right? Um, I mean, we're in Tucson. We're near the border. So got to be around here somewhere. And he, and he found him. Um, and so over the next seven years, David, with the help of his like-minded racist friends, realized that his biggest problem in life was that he felt like he needed to demonstrate authority. All right. But he couldn't do it over adults. All right. He had tried and failed at that. Clearly, like he was a cop and then he wasn't a cop. And so, um, he thought, well, maybe, maybe if I, if I show some dominance over like some children, that'll help me feel like a man. Um, he also knew that his former hometown of Cokeville, uh, had been receiving like some above average test scores, which I mean, like for Wyoming, that's probably not super difficult to achieve, but I don't know. Maybe these kids in Cokeville, Wyoming were, were pretty smart. We're smarter than the average Wyoming. What is it? What is someone from Wyoming called a Wyoming, Wyomite, Wyoming? I don't know. Anyway, um, so on May 16th, 1986, Davis and Doris or David and Doris, uh, drove back up to Cokeville from Tucson and stopped at the Cokeville elementary school. Uh, David walked into the school office and began handing out copies of his manifesto, um, titled zero equals infinity, which first of all, it doesn't, uh, zero is like nothing. Infinity is like everything. And those are like the opposite things. So already kind of discredited. Um, I mean, I'm pretty sure like even the elementary school kids would have been like, yeah, no, that's not right. 
That's that's not true. Zero does not equal infinity. They are two different numbers. Anyway, um, he then announced that a revolution was occurring, um, which really only confused the staff like a lot more because it's Cokeville, Wyoming. Like it's not like a booming metropolis, right? It's this tiny town and tiny towns are not really where revolutions begin. Right. Um, so he's, he's continuing to pitch this manifesto. And while he's doing that to the front, which is so stupid, it's like, man, a revolution is coming, right? These, these kids, they're going to rise up and they're going to be too smart. And then we're going to turn America into this whole woke nation where Jews and black people are more, are, there's more of them than, than pure white people. We can't be having that. We're going to start a revolution because zero equals infinity. If we have zero black people and zero Jews, then we can have infinity white people. And that's why zero equals infinity. And so while he's like off doing this, Doris is going through every classroom and she's gathering up all the teachers and students. And Um, basically like there's 136 students and she comes across six faculty members, nine teachers and a UPS driver for some reason and gathered them all into one room and told them that there's an assembly about to go on like UPS driver. I poor guy, right? Like, and, and here's the thing, like, I don't understand why all of these teachers and faculty members just blindly believed a woman that they had never seen had just showed up without warning for an assembly. Um, I also don't understand why the UPS driver would just skip the rest of his delivery day to go to this assembly. Like maybe she had a gun. Like sources didn't say she had a gun. Sources were just like, yeah, she just went around the school and gathered everybody up for an assembly. You know, whatever. Um, But everyone quickly figured out like they had just become hostages. And... You know, once Doris had everybody in place, she got David in there and he showed everyone that he had uh, a gasoline bomb that had its triggering mechanism attached to a shoelace that he had then tied around his wrist. And he told them and, and by now he had gotten police on the phone. He told police that he wanted two million dollars per hostage. That's a pretty hefty payout for, you know, 140, 550 people. Um, he also wanted to talk with president Ronald Reagan and you know, look, here's the thing though. Um, children at an elementary school are hard enough to deal with as it is. It's, it's a lot harder when you're trying to gather them all in the room and have them all pay attention for some sort of assembly. And so the kids were really antsy, really restless. A lot of them were understandably scared. And then when everyone found out that it was one kid's birthday, everyone in the assembly room, which is kind of cute, including David and Doris, they all just got together and started singing happy birthday to this kid. It's really random. Um, two and a half hours later, you know, they're still all hostages. The police haven't paid them. Ronald Reagan doesn't care about any of this. Um, but David needs to go to the bathroom. So he transferred the bomb, the shoelace thing over to Doris and as as David's in the bathroom peeing, Doris accidentally triggers the gasoline bomb and it detonates black smoke engulfs this room, which then gave the teachers like enough of a distraction to just start chucking kids out of the windows. Like 
eh, like, you know, third, fourth, fifth graders, they can get out on their own. But like first and second graders, they're pretty useless. Teachers just got to be chucking those kids just right on through. Right. Um, The parents who had gathered outside of the school to try to, you know, I don't know what they were going to do. They saw the distraction. They started breaking through the police lines to go and grab their children. Um, David comes out of the bathroom. He sees all this chaos going on. He shoots Doris, who deserved it, right? Because she's messed all of this up. Um, He also shot John Miller, one of the teachers, um, as he tried to run away before deciding to just walk back into the bathroom and and shooting himself. Um, In the end, 76 people suffered some injuries, but the only two people who died were David and Doris. Um, Once everything had settled down, several children um, reported actually seeing angels in the classroom that day, uh, including one lady who dressed in all white who ushered children to the window after the bomb had exploded. Is that true? I don't know. Kids and their imaginations, right? I don't know. Um, but yeah, you know, the, 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 a good school disaster that, that ended, had a happy ending. Um, our final story of the day, um, began on September 1st, 2004, as students in the small town of Beslan in the far southwestern part of Russia arrived at the superly, uh, super creatively named school number one for their first day of classes. Like, Russia, like, you know, for all of the criticism that they get, it's pretty warranted, right? Like, at least in America, we have, we we name our schools, you know, maybe it's named after a person, maybe it's named after the community, you know, maybe it's named after like a, a geographic landmark, but some school names are are, you know, good and creative. Russia just like, School number one, school number two, school number 594. And it's just like, is there any kind of creativity and happiness in this country? Um, But shortly after 9 a.m., parents and students watched as what looked like a Russian special forces unit arrive on the school grounds and begin a security drill. And like, being Russia, like that seems like something that would happen, you know, just like the Russian military coming through, we must have drill and just er interrupting everyone's daily life to do a drill. But, and and so like no one, no one really thought anything of it until the Russian special forces began shooting their guns in the air and yelling things like, and and forcing everyone inside the building, which those are not the things that the special forces usually did. And that's because it wasn't the Russian special forces. It was an Islamic, uh, it was a group of Islamic nationalists uh, from the nearby Russian Republic of Ingushetia who had arrived to just ruin everybody's day. Um, these terrorists wore green military camouflage, black masks and explosive belts and underwear, which that probably couldn't have been very comfortable, right? Like explosive underwear. You know, I know last week we talked about, you know, exploding pants and like the chemical that, that could blow your dick off. But like literally like like, that's not on purpose though. Like the farmers didn't know that that was going to happen. Like what's going through your mind as a terrorist when you're getting ready for, your terrorist attack that day 
and you're putting on your underwear that is lined with wires and explosives and you gotta like arrange your stuff around that and you probably still feel it and it's very uncomfortable and you know that if something goes wrong you could have a very painful day you know assuming that you're you just survive right i don't know terrorists are silly um in the ensuing chaos 50 people escaped out of the school and alerted authorities of what was going on Uh, another group of students and faculty hid in the boiler room of the school everyone else which was a lot of people were subjected were subjected to the preceding gunfight between the terrorists and police and armed civilians while the terrorists tried to take control of the school. And within minutes, the terrorists had won. Like they took over the school, eight people were dead, right? Even more, the terrorists now had roughly 1,100 hostages. Though the Russian government initially tried to downplay the situation and said that there were only 354, which still terrible. Um, And so all of the hostages were herded into the gymnasium Everyone's phones were confiscated. Um, one father, Ruslan Betrozov, Ruslan Betrozov, I got I to say it in the accent for it to go, uh, go through. Um, he's in the gym with all the hostages. He tries to stand up and calm everyone down, um, you know, because he's able to communicate with the terrorists um, and he repeats the demands in uh, the local language of Ossetic or Ossetic, um, you know, they're in Beslan just in case they couldn't understand Russian. And once, once like he had kind of calmed everybody down, explained what was going on, a soldier or gunman walked up to Betrozov, asked if he was done talking and Betrozov, Betrozov was probably like, yes, friend, I tried to help. I tried to make situation better for you. And then gunman was like, too bad, bang, and just shot this dude right in the head. Um, after another man was shot and killed, the Russians, or the, the terrorists, that's a Freudian slip, uh, the, the terrorists recorded themselves dragging the two bodies out of the gym, leaving a trail of blood as they went. Um, so after that, they established all their ground rules, and then the terrorists gathered roughly 20 people that they considered the strongest male teachers and fathers and took them up to the cafeteria on the second floor. And within a few seconds, a huge explosion rang out. And not not because uh, those 20 people were then just executed, but one of the female bombers had accidentally detonated her explosive belt which killed another terrorist standing beside her and several of the other hostages. And at that point, the remaining terrorists ordered the the hostages who weren't dead yet to lie down so that they could all start to get executed. Um, Eventually, Russian police, the Russian army, and the Spetsnaz, which is like the Russian version of the Navy, Navy SEALs, they set up a perimeter around the school and started trying to figure out like how to end this entire ordeal. Uh, along with a makeshift army of armed civilians, as many as 5,000 people had now gathered outside of the school to fight. Uh, meanwhile, the terrorists planted explosives all around the school building and threatened to kill up to 50 hostages for every one of their terrorists that got killed. 
um, over the next two days, right? Like we're like 48 hours, 50, 52 hours into this. Um, Russian forces tried unsuccessfully to peacefully negotiate with the terrorists. Um, they eventually decided to let Ruslan Ashev, the former president of the uh, terrorist region, um, come into the building and take out 11 uh, nursing women and 15 babies, along with a videotape that contained their demands um, that the Russian government initially claimed to media outlets was empty. But in reality, um, the terrorist leader Shamil Basayev um, demanded independence for the entire region of Chechnya. Um, and if I if I remember correctly, I think the Boston Marathon bomber was from Chechnya. And so it's just it's one of those like war torn Eastern Russian states that isn't I, I don't think they're really ethnically Russian. They're they're more um, in that you know, kind of, or sorry, Western Russia, they're more Eastern European, uh, more Muslim states, and they want their independence. Um, by the end of the second day, the terrorists were really getting tired of all the kids complaining about how hot it was in the gym and how no one had any food or water, which is reasonable. Um, but and despite threatening to kill everyone, the terrorist um, just... <laughs> This is the, the terrorists just continued to blast Ramstein. You know, like, you know, Ramstein, like the old metal band that sings Du hast, Du hast mich, Du hast mich, da, da, da. you know, that, um, which <laughs> just so silly. Um, but they kept, they kept that on repeat just to stay hyped up and to keep the Russian police away from the school because apparently Russian police are afraid of Ramstein for some reason. Um, despite tossing two grenades uh, setting a police car on fire and actually shooting one officer, the Russian police and the Russian army never actually shot back. Um, on the third day, shortly after 1 p.m., the terrorists allowed a group of medical workers inside to remove 21 dead bodies from the school, probably because they started to stink after three days, probably. Um, but as the paramedics approached, the terrorists changed their mind and opened fire, killing two of them. Uh, an explosion rang out a few seconds later, which set the gymnasium roof on fire and caused the burning rafters to actually fall onto the hostages below. And within minutes, the entire roof collapsed, which set the the rest of the gymnasium on fire and actually ended up killing uh, 160 people. Now, no one can agree on what happened next. Um, some people say that snipers began picking off terrorists inside the building. Others say that rocket rocket powered grenades were launched from nearby apartment buildings. And then others say that the terrorists just detonated their own explosives to start even more fires in the school. Um, but regardless of how it started, the explosions gave, and, and all the fires gave the Russian army and the rest of the armed forces the permission that they kind of wanted to begin open fi- opening fire and laying siege to the school. Uh, at that point, the rest of the hostages just started scattering, which then forced the terrorists to kind of split their gunfire between the, you know, people outside attacking them and the hostages running all around. Um, Russian troops then stormed the building while tanks and helicopters and armed civilians provided like additional support outside. 
Um, while the rockets and grenades and other explosives rained down on the school, terrorists moved the hostages to other parts of the building, mainly the cafeteria, where they forced them to stand in front of the windows and act as human shields to take the incoming fire from the Russians who did not bother to stop shooting. They just, they didn't, (laughs) they didn't discriminate at that point. They just saw a body in a window and just fired. And as many as 110 hostages were then accidentally shot by the Russians outside as they attempted to take over the school. But 12 hours later, everything finally came to an end. Um, because, however, of just like a, a strange lack of firefighters and ambulances, the fire was allowed to continue raging and many of the injured um, inside the school were forced to either wait several hours for help or be driven to uh, area hospitals in private cars. And because like the Bezlon Hospital in and of itself wasn't equipped to handle such a massacre, which forced patients to be sent to hospitals in Vladikavkaz, more than like 15 miles away. Um, And in the cold way that Russians kind of do things, bulldozers were like immediately called in, like within hours to remove debris and whatever dead bodies um, were left inside. Like they didn't even, they didn't even extract the bodies. It was just, all of it was just gathered up and tossed in a dump. Um, in all 335 people died in the siege, including 186 children. Uh, the entire event, which, um, is considered the deadliest school shooting in history, um, actually led to huge reforms in Russia's security and political systems, which, actually ended up giving Vladimir Putin even more power. Like he used that event to give himself even more control over the country. Um, The Russian government was rightfully heavily criticized for publicizing false information about the incident to downplay it. Um, But ultimately like, you know, the more of the truth ended up coming out and to, but to this day, like no one, still really knows like how many terrorists were initially involved in the siege. No one knows how many escaped in the chaos of the gun battle. And like, even though they kind of, you know, even though they claimed like they wanted to do it for Chechnya's independence, like no one really understands like why they had to take over a school in the first place. There you go. Um, not not to downplay like Virginia Tech or Newtown or Uvalde or insert recent school shooting here, um, but it does it does happen a lot more than you think, and there are a lot more incidents that happen that don't get reported on for whatever reason. So, with that, let's recap and see what we learned today. <music> What did we learn? Um, actually, you know what? Uh, like school shootings happen, right? We get that. But here's the thing. I, I'm just going to derail this entire segment right off the bat. Um, one of the things, um, like I remember, you know, in school, you know, we had tornado drills, we had fire drills, 
Um, didn't I don't think we did earthquake just because you know earthquakes didn't happen in Eastern North Carolina. But um, towards I think like my junior senior year, I think that was shortly after Virginia Tech and uh, schools everywhere began implementing a new like active shooter drill. And I don't know if they've changed it since then, but I hope they have because the way that we did the active shooter drill at first was really stupid, right? And I can't remember if I've talked about this on the show or not, but it's like like the active shooter drill, at least in its original iteration. Again, I don't know if they've changed it now. Please let me know if they have. But like when word got out that there was an active shooter on the campus, classrooms were instructed to just turn out the lights and hide away from like the window on the door if they were on like another floor or just away from like all windows so that the gunman couldn't, you know, so that with the idea being that like if the gunman's walking down the hall and he looks in the classroom, he just thinks that like it's an empty classroom. There's no one there. Like that's, that's assuming all of that assumes that the gunman is a complete idiot, right? Cause like, here's the thing. I don't, I, I, in all of these mass shootings, I don't recall the motive just being random. Like these are all very thought out. It's not like the gunman woke up one day and was just like, Hey, I'm going to go shoot up a school. No, this is very calculated and planned out. Right? Like, <laughs> like the Columbine shooters planned this out. All right. All these, you know, Virginia tech guy planned this out. Um, and so, you know, it's not like the gunman is just going to show up on the campus one day. All right. And he's not going to like shoot one classroom or be even maybe he doesn't even get to that point. Let's assume that school administrators see him walking up through the parking lot, just machine guns and rifles just dangling off of him. And they're going to put the word out active gunman on campus. Everybody, you know, drill is in effect. Do you know, turn the lights out, go hide. The gunman is not just going to start walking down the hallways, looking in classrooms and suddenly get very confused. He's not going to be like, well, dang, today's what? What's today? Today's, today's Tuesday. Today's Tuesday. They in school today. I don't know why he's got this accent. Is today teacher work day? Is today one of them federal holidays? I could have sworn. I could have sworn I saw them school buses out there this morning. No, that's obviously not going to happen. Like, if anything, an active shooter drill just herds everyone together. And I look, I don't know what the solution is, right? Like, the only other, like, the only other solution is that, like, that's reasonable, is that, like, every school builds a bunker that everyone can get to. Like, there's just every classroom has an entrance point into the bunker, And once everybody's in, the teacher can close like the steel door, the bulletproof door, and everyone just hangs out in the bunker until police say that, you know, it's all clear. That's the only real, but no, you're going to what? Lock the door. Cool. The gunman can bust out the window and get in, you know, like gunman can get in the classroom if you want to. And like, 
You're just going to assume that the gunman's going to look in and not kind of go in the car. Like it just, it does not make sense to me. Um, why that? And, and you know what? It was probably just more of a political move. Like, Hey, should we just ban guns? No, no, we will not ban guns. How about we do this instead? Um, how about we give more guns to people? No, you don't like that. All right, fine. How about we just make a drill? And make sure that students and teachers are prepared in case it ever happens again. And then that's what we compromised on. I just, you know, again, I've talked about guns before. I'm not going to make this a whole gun debate. Um, I'm not, I'm, I'm not for banning guns. I think, you know, you don't need a lot of guns though. It's just me. seems reasonable. I don't know why you need all of the guns, you know, but whatever. That's beside the point. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think, uh, active shooter drills are stupid and don't actually solve the problem. Next week on our weird world, I actually kind of hinted at it, uh, in the first story, of the day, but we are going to look at uh, two different stories next week. We're going to look at the stories of Randy Weaver and Charles Whitman. Charles Whitman was the um, person behind the Austin clock tower massacre, which we'll talk about that. Uh, Randy Weaver um, kind of happened around the same time as the Waco siege with David Koresh. Um, Basically just a guy who, didn't want the government messing with him. And then the government messed with him and um, just a lot of unfortunate things happened there. So we will cover those two stories next week. And that is it for this week. Thank you all for listening. Hope you learned something, but keep telling all your friends and keep it weird. Got Lil Wayne pumping on my iPod, thumping on the subs in the back of my crew cab, redneck rockin' like a rock star, sling a little mud off the back, we can do that. Friday night football, Saturday last call, Sunday hallelujah. If you like it up loud and you're hillbilly proud, then you know what I'm talking about. Our party in the club is a honky tonk downtown. Yeah, that's where we like to hang out. Chilling in the back room, hanging with my whole crew, sipping on a cold brew. Hey now, got a mixed up playlist? DJ, play this. Want to hear a country song? If you like it up loud and you're hillbilly proud, Throw your hands up now. Let me hear you shout. Rap or country, city, farm. It don't matter who you are. Got a little fight. Got a little love. Got a little redneck in your blood. Are you one of us? Truck yeah. I want to get it jacked up. Yeah. Let's crank it on up. Yeah. With a little bit of luck, I can find me a girl with a truck. Yeah. We can love it on up. Yeah. 
till the sun comes up. Yeah. And if you think this life I love is a little too country, you're right on the money truck. Yeah. <laughs>